Okay, let's turn to Matthew 28. We're just going to start there, do some review of the times I've taught you the last couple times in this passage. And really, we're doing more of a sermon tonight. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature of the Father, and the nature of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to begin in Matthew 28. Here in Matthew 28, it says, and can you turn on a, just like a tube light right over us if it's not going to mess your camera stuff up? Or the, to turn all of the, uh, a couple tube lights over us. It says here, the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some still doubted. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So, if you guys would remember that the um, <clears throat> last few times, or at least the number of times I have taught while I was here, we, 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 we went through this. We probably went through three different sermons concerning this passage of Scripture. Um, if I start to review, I may get caught up in the whole teaching is review. I'll try not to. But by way of review, to do a proper exposition of this portion of Scripture, we need, I, it's like three hours for me, maybe even more. And, and you need to talk about five different things, essential things, not that these five different things, um, just turn me down a little bit. I may shout later. Not that these five things are, uh, that's good, thank you, um, are exhaustive um, for our need of godliness, but they are foundational. Not just because they're the Great Commission, uh, but because the Great Commission talks and involves these five things. And the, the first thing would be the authority of Jesus Christ. Second would be um, discipleship, going into all the world. So within that discipleship, you can talk about so many things. Um, a lot of Bible commentators and preachers, when they discuss discipleship, they must discuss it, discuss it in relation to what this text is actually saying and even more um, of what Acts 1.8 is saying, and that is go into all the world making disciples. And so when we discuss discipleship, one of the things we must discuss in discipleship is um, primarily what is discipleship, how is discipleship accomplished, and with that, you could go and do a seminary class on it. And, and it'd be very fruitful to spend months studying what is discipleship. Nevertheless, it's very important 
that we understand what it is in simple terms, which is the time we have tonight. And discipleship is the preaching and teaching of God's Word. That is what essentially what discipleship is. It is the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, there's different forms of discipleship in the manner in which people do preach and teach. Probably the most effective form of discipleship is the follow me model, and I will make you fishers of men, and that is that those who are being discipled, as the Hebrews would say it, is following in the footsteps or in the dust of your rabbi, and that uh, statement can be more relatable in Africa because it's so dusty here. So when you're following your rabbi, you're following your discipler, you're following your teacher, your mentor, even though I hate that word, by the way. Um, may I start a movement within our church to stop saying the word mentor? It's not a biblical word, and that is what the world says. Oh, I got a mentor. Oh, they're mentoring me. Shut up. They're discipling you. Because mentorship has meant, it's something different. And when we define terms, we define terms, it's very important because love means something totally different to the secular liberal than it actually means to the Christian. Love is much different. Love is not getting what we want and accomplishing what we feel. Love is very much different as the Bible describes it. And we've talked about that a lot at this church. And on a side note, there are times where I'm very, I don't know what you could call it, maybe even brokenhearted, upset, frustrated, burdened, when, and it's not everyone, except when the American election between Donald Trump and Joe, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, when that happened. I don't know if you guys remember this. I was having some of our staff and some of um, the closer core people come to me and say, look what people are saying from our church on Facebook. And they're showing me. Some of the stuff some of our members were saying on Facebook, congratulating and excited. And there were even comments on Facebook that they were praying, Kenyans in our church praying that Joe Biden would win the American election. Now, that's, none of you did that, of course. That would be unthinkable. So I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about all the others. I mean, guys, you, you think about this. Consider the times that we live in when the Bible says there will come a day where people will not, the church, people who are they, they call Jesus Christ Lord. Those who call Jesus Christ Lord, as Matthew 7 describes, and as second, or the Apostle Peter talks about, and, and Paul to Timothy, well, they will not endure sound doctrine. But they will keep unto themselves, preachers, teachers, um, after their own lust. Is there any other day 
where the general sense of Christians, maybe not in America, it wasn't the majority, but in Kenya, certainly, if you did a study, I guarantee you would find out that most Kenyans were for Joe Biden. Because why? CNN told them to be. There will come a day where people will actually be praying for one of the world empires for the election of that president who murders babies, promotes homosexuality, and is for economic immorality. There will come a day where that will happen. Listen, that day's come. It's here. And do you remember? I don't know if you remember. I was so burdened by this. Do you guys, some of you might remember. When that happened, the Sunday after it happened, when I found out what our church members were saying about that election, I put pictures of babies being ripped apart. Their legs being ripped off, their heads being squeezed with forceps, their legs and arms being ripped off. And we show body parts on Sunday morning at this church. Does anybody remember this? A couple of you? Why? Because I wanted you to know you're praying for a guy who wants that to happen. Not you. Of course, this is Thursday. Not you. So I'm saying this to say this. When I am encouraging you to do something, I'm not saying you have to obey me blindly, but you should reciprocate, reciprocate truth that's being preached from this pulpit amongst not only the members of our church, but out in society. You go to your workplace and you teach what you have been taught. That is the greatest form of discipleship. Now, the greatest form probably is one-on-one or one-on-three where there's a guy or, uh, actually discipling men and there's a woman actually discipling men. That is probably not the greatest form. That's the most effective form of discipleship. The greatest form of discipleship has been happening for 2,000 years every Sunday morning. Sunday morning preaching and teaching from God's Word for 2,000 years is the greatest form of discipleship the world has ever seen. And that's it. And listen, because that is the greatest form of discipleship, and it is, there's no question, the Bible even talks about it not one or two or 10 or 15 or 50 times, It talks about it a couple hundred times in the New Testament. The importance of the church, the importance of the body of Christ, the importance of gathering together so that the Word of God can immerse and permeate and just fill our minds and fill our hearts. Now, because that's the greatest form of discipleship, does that then make the greatest disciplers, the preachers and pastors that have preached on Sunday morning for the last 2,000 years? Yes or no? The answer is no. Now, it's very important. And it's immediately important that, that preachers are in prayer, preachers are in preparation, and preachers have passion. And whatever other P word I could use to emphasize the importance of the Sunday morning pulpit. But it is, though it's the greatest form of discipleship, it's only the greatest form of discipleship because of the people that are hearing and being immersed by God's word. 
And that process is reciprocated. I hope you have convictions. I hope you have convictions. I know many of you do. I certainly know, you know, uh, um, Pastor Odoyer, our lead pastor of this church, and you, you guys should hear all the stuff that Alfred has to talk about with his colleagues uh, at the university. And I know many of you are doing this, but if you're not doing this, if you're not reciprocating by speaking out the knowledge that you're receiving every Sunday morning and Thursday night, then you're in disobedience to the Great Commission's call for all believers to be disciplers. So what I'm telling you is the way you disciple people, whether they want to be discipled or not, the way that you reciprocate discipleship is by speaking out the truths that you learn from God's Word. When you keep quiet about it, you're not discipling. You guys are disciplers. Now, I also think that there's an over-formalized view of discipleship in the world today. And what I mean by that over-formalized view of discipleship is many different things, but in simple terms is people go outside of the church, start entire Bible colleges and seminaries and parachurch organizations and hope to fulfill the command of the Great Commission. When really the greatest form of the discipleship is for people to be faithful to a local assembly of believers which is called the church, the body of Christ, and they reciprocate the knowledge that they hear from their pastors out in their workplaces and with their friends and with their family. That is the greatest form of discipleship in the world. And it's become so formalized to the point where people actually have the mentality the mind to say, no, discipleship is for the pastor. Discipleship is for the seminary professor. Discipleship is for the priests. God forbid discipleship is for the priest. They have no clue what's going on. And many of you were raised in the Catholic Church. So, that's second. Thirdly, you would, we would talk about baptism. It mentions baptism in the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered why people have been baptizing for 2,000 years? And have you ever thought about why does the pastors of Calvary Eldoret take baptism so seriously to the point where we baptize once a month and we do it in, during the service? because of the Bible. It is actually a sacrament of the church for the church not only to be baptizing people and not only for the individual to obey baptism as God has commanded, but it brings supernatural power to the testimony of those being baptized throughout our church. It's powerful. I have deep convictions that baptism needs to happen on Sunday morning and it needs to be during the, ch the church service. But that's a personal conviction that all, not all my pastor friends share. I just don't know if they've thought about it. 
Not that I've thought about everything they haven't thought about, but this is certainly something. Baptism. Then, fourthly, talk about sound doctrine. Jesus says, commanding them everything I have spoken to you. We are to teach everything, observe all things. Teach them, Jesus says here, and observe all things that I have spoken to you. You know, no revival has ever happened without a returning to God's word. It's never happened. What is God telling you? And then what we're going to spend the rest of our time on is the fifth thing, and that's the presence of Jesus Christ in us and in the world. Now, think about these five things I've mentioned. The authority of Christ, discipleship, baptism, sound doctrine, and the presence of Christ. What is the greatest institution, the most powerful institution in the world today? I know we're live, but I, I wanted a little bit more interaction. What will the gates of hell not prevail against? The church. What has been the greatest attack the world has had in the last four years against which institution? The church. So the great commission is the authority of Christ, discipleship, baptism, sound doctrine and the presence of Christ. And what are, those are five, there's actually six pillars of the church, but they're made up of this. You have the authority of Christ. Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. You have discipleship. Jesus Christ is the great discipler who's also the head of church. You have baptism, a sacrament of the church. You have sound doctrine. The very foundation of the church is the word of God. And you have the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ is through all of those things, but primarily through two things that Acts 2 mentions, and that is prayer and the Word of God. The Great Commission is to be done through the power of the church as we obey these five things in the six pillars of the church. It's very important. But here, in regards to the nature of Jesus Christ, and you guys heard me say this before, but do you remember that great upper room discourse study that we went, I think, almost a year we studied, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17? And Jesus says to them, I'm going away. I'm going to go be with the Father. I return to the right hand of the Father. You remember that? And here, he says that he is going to be with us, always, even to the end of the age. But he actually clarifies in the Gospel of John, he says, I will be in you, the Father will be in you, and the Holy Spirit will be in you. Do you remember this? And... Then he tells us he's going away, so it can get confusing. But we understand, as we've studied, our church understands. And guys, reciprocate this. Go tell people. Though the tri triune Godhead is three persons, dis distinct persons, who exist separately, 
and by the way, manifest themselves separately, have the identical duplicate, not duplicate, the identical nature. Duplicate is two. So the Father has the exact same nature as the Son. They don't deviate even one iota. The Son has the same nature as the Spirit, and the Spirit has the same nature as the Father. And it goes round and round and round for eternity. They're not different, though they're three different persons. And they must have the same nature because you can't have less than what is perfect. You can't have less than what is absolutely holy. So because the Holy Spirit fills us, that means Jesus Christ is in us. Because the Holy Spirit fills us, that means the Father is in us. Now, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're talking about the nature of God. And guys, I know we sometimes put scripture on the screen. Get a Bible if you don't have one. We'll give you one and bring it to church and turn. Have your Bible in front of you. You never know I could be lying to you. Here it says in 2 Peter 1, Simon Peter, a bond slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers. Through these promises, the promises that were mentioned in the Gospel of John, the promises that are absolutely dominated by love in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, that we have been promised the divine nature of God, and now we have become partakers of this divine nature. The Bible's like, through these precious, these, the, the, the Bible, by the way, is the master of understatements. But here, I mean, think about understatements. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever heard an a, 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 a sentence that is more understating than that? Okay, how many nuclear bombs, the equivalent of a nuclear bomb, blew up when he created the heavens and the earth? Immeasurable. Immeasurable. I mean, there's no quadrillion, trillion, trillion, just the, the power that came out of his mouth when he created the heavens and the earth is immeasurable, and it's summed up in one sentence? But, but listen, when you want to go to a text, when you want to go to a portion of Scripture that is trying to really emphasize, there, there's a few Scriptures. This is one of them. Another one would be John 3.16. You know, Jesus, for God so loved the world, not for God loved the world, for God so loved the world 
it gets much different when you add the so on it, doesn't it? If I, if I came up to, you know, one of you guys or, or ladies, it would be awkward. If I'm like, hey, I love you. That wouldn't be awkward. You'd be like, ah, oh, I love you too. If I came up to you and was like, hey, I so love you. Well, God is, I, he so loves us. What it's doing here is immensely more non-understating, overemphasizing than the actual creation of the galaxies. And this is why, because the nature of God is far more immensely wonderful than the creation of the Milky Way galaxy than the creation of all the other galaxies throughout the known universe. The nature of God is something, it is a topic, it is, it is something more important, more valuable, more precious to talk about than actual how far the earth is from the sun and how many degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius the sun is and how much power it took to create. What is more important that it is the nature of God, and there is an emphasis on how wonderful it is to the point where it says these great and these precious promises have promised us that we get to participate in His divine nature. This is amazing. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more majestic. There's nothing more glorious than the actual person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit as His attributes have been manifested in us and from us. But something interesting is said as we read on that we get to participate in these great and precious promises, we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Therefore, add to your faith, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. It just said that He's given us all things. Did you, did you, you read it, right? You saw it. He, he gave us all things, and then He says for us to add something. How can you add something to all things? How can you add anything to everything? The Bible, if you don't think about it, meditate it, you're not going to understand it, but the beautiful part of it is it's not complicated to understand, and that's good news because God made it simple for us because we're sheep, diluted. I don't care if you have the IQ of Mr. Bean, which you guys, Mr. Bean has like crossed the world, right? You guys know Mr. Bean? Roy Atkins? He's one of the greatest geniuses on the planet. Did you know that? He has an IQ of 165. It's higher than Albert Einstein. And it doesn't matter how genius you are, you can never understand the things of God unless Christ sits on the throne of your heart. You can never see clearly. And what he's saying is he's not saying 
that we have to add something to all things because he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness by giving us his nature. What the Bible is saying is that we are to participate in divine nature by adding the divine nature to our actions. So what it's teaching us here is those of us who've been born again, those of us who have possessed the nature of God because the Holy Spirit lives in us, which means Christ is with us and the Father is with us because the Holy Spirit is in us, that we have the ability not to manifest the nature of God, even though we're born again, even though we have the nature of God in us. Now that is what the Scripture is saying. That is why we must add to our faith, not that there's more things that we must add to our faith, but it's that our faith may increase, not to add something additionally that's not there, but that it must increase by taking action because faith is action. And that's why in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, all those heroes of the faith, it is talking about the actions that they took in their lives. And the greatest action that we can take in our lives by faith, through faith, is to manifest the nature of God because we've become partakers when we got born again. And the problem, the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is we suffocate the nature of God in us. And oftentimes, and probably more than oftentimes for many, it is that we walk in the flesh and the nature of God is quenched. The Holy Spirit is quenched in us through, through all kinds of reasons, all kinds of reasons. Top one off of my head would be fear. There are so many living in fear in the body of Christ today. Fear of not being able to pay the bills, financial fears, insecurities that fill us with fears, invulnerabilities that cause us to put on a mask of, uh, of not only who, who we are as God has made us to be, but who God is in us manifesting from us. Fear is a big one. You guys heard that illustration of Satan was having a sale once where he was selling the items that he uh, wanted to from his house. You guys ever heard of, in America we call them yard sales? Yard sales, you go to somebody's house, they put all their stuff out in the yard or out in the front of their house and they're trying to sell things. No? You know? Well, you, can, you get the picture. And Satan had his table and he had lust and he had murder and he had envy, and he had slander and covetous and immorality. And then, you know, all of these were like a hundred shillings. And I'm selling that for a hundred shillings, selling that for a hundred shillings. And the last one was fear, and it was worth like a hundred thousand shillings. And somebody asked Satan, they said, why is fear worth a hundred thousand shillings? He says it's very difficult to sell. Murder is not very valuable. 
It's like, hey, I want you to go murder somebody. Here, I'll give you murder. It's like, no, I don't want to murder anybody today. Hey, I want you to go steal something. I'll give you thieving. You can go steal something. It's like, I, no, I don't want to go steal anything. In Kenya, they, they kill you. They put tires on you and burn you if you steal. I don't want to do that. All right, well, here's something very valuable. It costs a lot of money, but here's fear. Actually, it's the other way around. Those other things cost a lot of money. Fear is cheap. Because it's cheap because if, you, if we buy fear we are susceptible to doing the rest and he doesn't need to sell it to us. You see, most people don't get in their minds that they're going to, to go murder somebody. But when somebody lives in a constant state of fear, they are tempted to do all kinds of horrible things. Worry, fear, concern is one of the biggest problems in the church today. Now, this nature... This is my point. This is the Bible's point. This is not my point. This is the Bible's point. You have the free will to choose to walk and manifest the nature of God or the, the, the spirit of God in your life, out from your life. The Bible says in Galatians 5 that walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And this is what's in the spirit, uh, the flesh. It's murder, strife, envy, immorality, fornication, uh, gossip, so just the whole list. This is the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, faithfulness, all of these things. Now listen, it is not that there are several fruits of the spirit. There is one fruit of the spirit. It is singular. This is the fruit of the spirit and it is love. And from love comes patience. From love comes self-control. From love comes kindness. From love comes joy. When we are loving, when we, when we are understanding the presence of God, which by the way, guys, meditate on this. Think about this. The greatest way that we can fulfill the Great Commission, and that is making disciples and preaching the gospel because the Great Commission is not just uh, exhaustively taught to us in the, uh, Matthew 28. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we get all the Great Commission we combined. We've got to preach the gospel. It is the presence of Christ with us that enables us, that strengthens us, that motivates us to participate in the Great Commission of preaching the gospel, making disciples, uh, 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 baptizing, sound doctrine, uh, the authority of Christ, all that the church is and does, it is because of the nature of God in us that we are motivated to do it because the nature of Christ is love, the nature of the Father is love, the nature of the Spirit of love, and when He is in us and we are properly loving because we choose to manifest the nature of God, then we will be doing the things He tells us to do. And that's why the Bible says, if Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments, right? It is love. If you truly love the person you're working with, you will share the gospel with them because you know they're going to hell if they don't get born again. And because you love them, you don't want, to go, you don't want them to go there.
Listen, this is the point, guys. This is the point. You have the free will choice to manifest the nature of God by adding to your faith all the things he's commanded us to walk in. Do you see the connection between fulfilling the Great Commission, the presence of Jesus Christ in us, and actually participating, partaking by adding to our faith the nature of God that is in us manifested out from us. Now, there, there's something really cool, and I'm glad I still have time. I want you to, let me read something to you because it involves the nature of God. It's very profound. You guys, by the way, if you paid attention to what goes on here at Calvary Eldoret from this pulpit, you would be scholars if you retained it and started reciprocating it. We get caught up trying to be too cool. It says here, somewhere, chapter 2, verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels, of 2 Peter, chapter 2, Beginning in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to change of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lot who was oppressed by filthy conduct of the wicked. For the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed. Guys, this, the, the Word of God is incredible. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan to stop right here because this is not the point I want to make. The Lord is going to deliver the godly from the ungodly, and one of these traits, in fact, let me mention two of the traits that are mentioned. It mentions more than two traits, but two of them are walking in the flesh, and despising authority. If you want to know if somebody is walking not in the Spirit of God, they're always talking about their pastors or their bosses or they're just nagging, despising, dividing, gossiping, slandering. And He will deliver them. Now, it gets very interesting. Where angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviving accusation against them before the Lord. So, these people, these false teachers and these ungodly people, they are going to be judged. They will not escape judgment. It's silly because they think they have the power to accuse uh, Satan. They think they have power, but not even Gabriel or Michael uh, 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 speaks to Satan. And they have greater power than these false teachers. 
But they, verse 12, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will perish. They are spots. They crowds in the pleasure in the daytime. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness. I just read that backwards. Let me get to verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practice and are cursed children. Now, now we're going to go to chapter 3. This is what the Bible's saying. They will not escape judgment. I wanted you to hear it. There's more to be read, but in chapter 2, they will be destroyed by God. And he says in chapter 3, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, that I may stir your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of these words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and commanded of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing the first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget by the word of God themselves of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by the world that existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire unto the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is his one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. So chapter 2, what we read, these people are going to be destroyed. There's no escape for them. Those who are not born again will be destroyed. And then Peter says... They mock, they laugh, they are arrogant, they despise authority, they're filled with sin, they're filled with the desires of their flesh, manifesting the desires of the flesh, desiring only the flesh. They will be destroyed, but they're mocking and this is what they're saying. Things have always gone on the way they have. And you Christians and you people and this... The, all you're saying is, is that God's going to come and God is going to uh, reign on the earth and God is going to destroy evil and God is going to uh, do all the things that you're saying is doing, but we go year after year and decade after decade and millennial after millennia and centuries and centuries and nothing's changed. And Peter says, but they're forgetting something. They deny the proof of something very scientific, very historic, very geographical, and that is the flood. That's the flood. Do you guys know that for however many years, a hundred years, we've been driving around our vehicles, and we've been flying around our planes, fueled by the remains of all those who died in the flood? 
Do you know that oil comes from organic matter? And the very organic matter that has filled the core of the earth and, and below the surface of the earth is the organic matter that we turn it, that is oil, is from the flood. So while they fly across the world mocking God, thinking they rule the world, they are actually flying across the world with the fuel of the people that God slaughtered during the flood because they were rebellious. And they mock and say, no, where is he? Where is he? Well, you forgot about the flood. That's proof. And you're mocking him that he's not coming back, not understanding the very reason he has not returned. Because one day is, is a thousand years and is a thousand years is one day. Do you think the Bible is teaching us that there is actually a mathematical equation that we seem to understand about time that is actually not accurate and time exists separately in God's heaven? And it's actually telling us that one day is as a thousand years as a thousand years is one day? It's not. That's not what it's saying. God is the one who during this time, who invented time, and a 24 hours is 24 hours, and that equals one day. And a thousand years is separate from one day, and a day is separate from a thousand years, the same way a second is separate from an hour, and 60 minutes equals. Time is not relative. Time is objective, and God created it, and for this season of humanity, we exist inside of it. This has everything to do with the nature of God. And guys, I know I'm getting very biblical and the theological here, but this is a, a church. I, I'm not here to entertain. Check this out because it's really cool. I hope you love knowledge. It, it is the very nature of God's... It, it's His nature that causes time to be this way to God. It's His nature that causes time to be this way. Have you ever boarded a matatu and you knew nobody, nobody on it and you had to take like a six-hour drive, like Nairobi or five-hour, however, to Kisi? Has anybody made a long trip like that in matatu? Raise your hand if you have. And you knew nobody. And you sit there for six hours and you know nobody and you're just quiet. And, and maybe you didn't even bring your headphones and you don't have your, your phone on you, can't watch anything. That six hours seems like a week, doesn't it? It's just like, oh my gosh, when are we going to get there? When are we going to... Oh my, it's only been an hour? We're only in burnt forest? Oh my gosh. You guys have gone through that. Time seems to have slowed down, doesn't it? But what if you board a matatu or enter a vehicle with somebody you absolutely love hanging out with? And you can talk, and you can talk, and you can talk, and you can talk, and you can talk. I have, uh, I have taken a nine-hour trip with a couple buddies from, from, um, from Bangor, Maine to Philadelphia. I was going to go speak at a church. A nine-hour trip, guys, that's a long trip in a car. I took two guys. I, man, I love these guys. Travis Carey, he's been here to preach, and also Greg Houston, who was here to preach. 
They're fun guys. They're interesting. They're learned men. They can talk about things. They read. By the way, if you don't read, you're not going to have a lot of talk about, by the way. It's like, yeah, who won the game? Argentina. Cool. I'm telling you, those nine hours, we talked and we laughed and we drank and we ate, not alcohol, but, and we fought and we made our ancestors proud. The nine hours seemed like 15 minutes. Have you taken a trip like that? Yeah. Did time actually change? No. It's that you are enjoying your time, which makes it go by so much faster, or it seems that it does, because you love the people you're around. That's why time seems so long to us, as this world is terrible, but so short to God. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He loves people. He loves people. He loves when you wake up in the morning so that you can commune with him. He loves when you speak to him. It makes time go by faster because he loves hanging out with you. He even loves the ungodly and he's trying to reach them and that's why one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Time is so pa- goes by so fast for God because why? It is his nature to love every single person on planet earth. Isn't that wonderful? There is a saying that constantly goes around the Calvary Chapel. We are very um, eschatological, eschatological, we're, we believe in the, um, the end times. I know the word, but um, eschatology. I hear people all the time in the Calvary Moon, especially in America. It's just like, I can't wait till he returns. I can't wait till he returns. Like, and everybody's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I'm tired of this life. When they're... When they're saying that, and listen, I get it. We should be desiring the return of our, of our husband. I know some of you are looking for a husband. Golly, I'm praying for you. I know some of you are looking for a wife. I'm praying for you. <laughs> you don't know who I was just looking at. You don't know. I saw this whole room was like, who's he looking at? I won't tell you either. Nelson. <clears throat> He said I could say that. He, he told me to go find him a wife. The, I, I, this summer, I heard it says so much because we believe the end times are here that it actually started to bug me. It's like, yeah. I, finally, somebody said, and I'm like, you know what? I could go another day without his return. And they thought I blasphemed the Holy Spirit or something. They actually, I caught him off guard. You ever say something... And it catches somebody off guard. Because so many people are superficial. You know what I'm saying? They're like, hey, how you doing? I'm good, I'm good. How you doing? Good, I'm good. And they sit down. There's real, so many people don't have real communion in our church. There was a time where my wife's sister, Laura, Kelsey's sister, was going through a very difficult time. 
And she was at a church, and, 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 and Laura is a very blunt woman. She's just that way. And she was having a difficult time in her life, and somebody came into the church and did that superficial greeting. Say, hey, how you doing? You know what? I'm not doing very good. Okay, see you later. And they walked away. Because most people don't expect an answer like that, a true answer. And, and, and I said this to this person, they're like, what do, you, what do you mean you could go another day without Christ? Are you? Well, let me tell you what I mean. I have a sister who's not born again. I have a couple brothers who are not born again. I have other family members who are not born again. I have friends who are not born again all throughout the world, including right here in Eldoret, Muslim friends, Hindu friends. And if Jesus comes back today, they're all going to hell. So on one sense, yes, I would love for Jesus to come back for me personally. But for their sakes... I thank God that it is in his nature to prolong his judgment because he is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. In relation to the first verse, the first scripture we read tonight, could it be said of your life that you love people that much that you're going to share the gospel with them because you don't want them to perish. Because if there's anything this Christmas season you need to learn about Christ who was born in Bethlehem, is that same Christ who was born in Bethlehem is screaming out to you for you to go share the gospel with the world. It is the greatest calling of any born-again person in the world. And if you truly love people like he does, if you truly want to manifest the nature of Christ, you will go share the gospel with the world. And if you don't, you are choosing to quench the Holy Spirit's voice that is living in you. You ever ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit telling me? What is the Holy Spirit saying? You want to know one of the fundamental primary things the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now? He tells us, 2 Corinthians, for we are ambassadors of Christ. It's as if God is persuading men through us that he who knew no sin might become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him to the glory of the Father. The Holy Spirit is screaming out within you saying, go, I want you to tell about Christ and what he did on the cross and that he was born and when you don't do that, you make a habit of pushing down the Holy Spirit and quenching. I want you to do something. In the next couple of days before this gospel outreach over this Saturday, 
I want you to release the Holy Spirit from your life. Not release, I'm not saying he's leaving, saying he's going to speak through you. And you know what he's going to say? Go tell people about the cross. Go tell your people about who Christ is. Go tell them about the righteousness of Christ, that he can impute their righteousness, his righteousness to them. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling you. And listen, do you feel depressed, sad, and you don't even know why sometimes? There's something empty. There's something that is unsettled in you. The moment you speak the Christ's name to an unbeliever, you will be filled. You will have meaning. You will have joy. And when you don't do that, you will be empty. Because the way we add our faith by becoming partakers of his nature is by speaking the name of Christ. And that's why the fifth part of the Great Commission mentioned in Matthew 28 is having Christ in us by the Holy Spirit who's in us becoming partakers of his divine nature. But we must add to our faith the things that God is and does. We must add to it. If you don't make it a habit of having the praises of Christ on your lips, I'm telling you guys, you'll be depressed. You'll, you'll be without meaning, with, without joy, without peace. I don't care if it is a, 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 a somebody of power or a rich businessman, or I don't care who it is. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about the knowledge that you learn here from this pulpit and the knowledge that you learn from reading your own Bibles. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, so much so, it is that you love that one day, the thousand years seems like one day to you because you love the world so much. I'm convicted, Lord, and I pray that you would allow me, that you would fill me and fill these people here tonight to love as you love. To where time just seems to go by so fast because of the work that we're doing by spreading your word and preaching your name. And then I ask that you would accomplish your will in us now. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.